Ecclesiastes, uh, in the end of chapter 9, starting in verse 13, hear the word of the Lord. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. And we confess that your word is often so mysterious to us. We need you to bring light by your spirit, to lead us into all truth, that we could understand your words. And so be our teacher now and um, apply uh, these dark, strange things into our individual lives that you would lead us to faith and repentance, to know your grace uh, more deeply. And uh, so we pray this now in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So we are in our uh, 13th week studying the book of Ecclesiastes uh, uh, this fall. And, you know, I have to say... Every week, you know, you may have experienced this. As I read the passage every week, you might think, you know, what are we going to say about this? Because Ecclesiastes is very strange, kind of all over the place in the things that it's saying. And uh, so far, the Lord has been good. 
that there's been one word that I've been able to find with each passage that kind of ties the whole passage together. And if you'll notice that, that I always title my sermons with one word. And I knew this passage was coming, where it has all these random proverbs that are, don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And I was thinking, what word am I going to find to tie this, this passage together? Well, as it turns out, uh, the word fool or folly or foolishness shows up ten times in this passage. So there it is. There's our word, foolishness. And uh, that's what we're talking about. You might wonder, is that an important topic to talk about as a church, as Christians, uh, think about foolishness? Well, you know, I think for the vast majority of people, if you ask them, would you describe yourself as a foolish person or a wise person? I think most of us think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty intuitive. I read people really well. I have a good sense about me. We'd probably say, you know, I'm, I'm on the wise side. I, I'm not necessarily on the foolish side. And, um, and yet, I think as we uh, look at this passage and we see how the Bible describes foolishness, we're going to find all kinds of little pieces that do maybe speak about our lives. And, and one of the things, it turns out, is you study the Bible's teaching on foolishness, which there's actually a fair amount, is that foolishness is actually really destructive. You know, if you live with a fool, or you work with a fool, or you're in a close relationship with a fool, it's a really painful experience. It actually could consume and dis- disrupt your whole life. I mean, it could be very frustrating. And, uh, and so this passage in Ecclesiastes, it, it feels like Ecclesiastes is just going to hammer us in all these different ways of warning us against being, being foolish, acting foolishly. And so this morning, we're just going to answer this one simple question. What is foolishness? And I want to highlight three answers to that question. What is foolishness? I won't get to all that this passage says. The passage says quite a lot. So I'm just going to, I'm going to highlight three of them. And this, the first of those answers is this. First thing about foolishness is that foolishness does not take advice. That's one of the main things. If you, if you read through the book of Proverbs, which is a book on wisdom, one of the main things it says about a fool is that a fool cannot be corrected, cannot hear a hard word and receive it and learn from it. You just can't do that. And uh, a fool is stubborn and defensive and wise in his own eyes. And you see this here in chapter 9, verse 13, at the beginning of that passage. It says, I've also seen... This example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me, there was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. And so what you, the scene here is this actually it's probably a small town in the ancient world that is being, you know, it's got this invading army of a king that's coming against it. And no one knows what to do. What are we going to do against this king? And there's this old wise man who's poor who either has previously delivered the city before he had some, you know, clever idea about how to keep the army out, or now he's got some clever idea, and no one listens to him. No one wants to take his advice. No one wants to hear from him. And, um, and you might ask the question, you know, why, why and, and this is foolishness. It's foolishness not to listen to the wise man, and not let him correct you and, you know, give you, give you insight and direction. And you might ask the question, you know, why does someone not take advice? Why do we not take advice? 
You know, someone speaks into our life, we brush it off, we put up walls, no thanks, I don't want to hear it. Why would we not listen to anything, anything that might be helpful for us to live our life better, to love people better? Why would we want to take that counsel? Even if, you know, even if that counsel came from someone who really didn't have good intentions in saying to us, maybe someone's just being critical of us, why would we not just receive that and say, well, you know, how can I improve from this? Or what can I learn from this? Well, I think a couple reasons the fool doesn't want to listen to advice. First of all, is because we think that advice condemns us. When someone corrects us, we're saying, they're saying there is something wrong with you. And most of us, when someone you know, challenges us, what's one of the main things we say? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. And we are very sensitive about being judged in, in our culture. You know, I don't want anyone being critical of me. I can even tell the way you're looking at me that you're judging me. And the reason for that is because, you know, we live in a culture where we're taught to think very positively about ourselves. You know, I, you follow your heart no matter what. Don't let anyone tell you different than what your heart's doing, what your, what your ideas are, what your dreams are. Don't let anyone tell you different. Which, you know, there's some truth in that. Right? It's, the Bible says that you should not live in fear of man. You should not live your life kind of always conceding to what other people want and, and trying to please other people. That's not, that's not how you should live. But if you take that too extreme, you know, I don't care what anyone else thinks, I'm going to do whatever I want, you're going to harden yourself to anyone else, some of the work that God might do in your life by other people speaking into your life. You could really harden yourself by, by following that too much. And what the gospel tells us, when we believe the gospel... What the gospel is, is that Jesus has died, lived the life that we should have lived, and died the death that we should have died on our behalf. When we believe that, what that tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us that we are really more sinful and more foolish than we ever dreamed. Like, we have more problems than anyone else knows, anyone out there knows, that we even are aware of. We're blind to so many problems. And so it should be our expectation that so people are going to have to call me out on things. People are going to have to correct me. People are going to have to speak in my life. They're going to have to say a hard word. It's not only something that might happen once. It might not be just what, at the beginning of my Christian life. This is going to be my whole life. This is going to be our whole life together. But the gospel also says, not only are there flaws in me that are going to need to be corrected because I'm a sinner, but the gospel also says that in Christ, my sins are all forgiven. I'm clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There's no longer, and there's no condemnation from God. I'm perfectly loved and approved and accepted in Christ. So I can be secure enough to hear your, your criticism, your correction of me. I can receive it. And this is one of the reasons that we say that the gospel is something that you can't just believe in your head and say, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. I'm going to go to heaven. You can't, you can't just believe in your head. It's something that's internalized into your heart. It's something you embrace with your heart. And it really starts to shape your own identity so that when someone says a hard word, it doesn't just derail you emotionally, but you can actually hear it. And you say, you know what, of course I need some correction. And of course I can hear it because I'm loved perfectly in Jesus. So the gospel allows us to take advice, correction, rebukes, and teaching from others. Okay, so, so one of the reasons a fool doesn't want to hear advice is because we think that it condemns us. But the gospel says it actually doesn't. It doesn't condemn us. We're, we're approved in Jesus. But another reason why it's hard to take advice is because advice hurts. Correction is painful. And uh, this is Psalm 141. I think I read this a few weeks ago. I, I love this. 
It says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And this psalm compares someone correcting us to being like taking a blow, you know? And it's like it's painful and it hurts, but he says, you know what, if a righteous man is going to correct me and strike me and hurt me with some words, I'm not going to refuse it. I need it. I know I need it in my life. But we have to be aware that it is painful. Learning, growing, maturing is always about pain and disruption. It's what educators call disequilibrium. The only way that you experience learning or growth in your life is when you experience disequilibrium. You're unsettled. Your assumptions about the world, about who you are, and about who God is, and about you know, how you perceive yourself and how you perceive the other people, all that whole procession has to be um, unsettled constantly. It needs to be challenged. That's the only way that learning happens, but that's painful when that happens. Those things that we assume about our lives. I mean, it's like when you're working out, you know, you got to tear your muscles when you're, you know, doing push-ups. It tears your muscles if you're going to get stronger. You know, I always tell my kids that when they're doing a workout. Like, you've got to love the pain. Love the pain. Do the sit-ups. You know, you got to love the pain. And, uh, and that's the only way that you can receive a rebuke is if you're able to love the pain, receive the pain. Know that pain is how we grow. But if you are insistent that I don't want disruption, I don't want to be unsettled, I don't want to be hurt, you will remain a fool. If God can't hurt me with someone's words, loving hurt, then I will remain a fool. Uh, Micah Lasley, some of you know Micah, he's a member of our church, was just telling me yesterday this quote from Paul Tripp, and this is what it says. God will take you where you haven't chosen to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Let me read that again. God will take you where you haven't chosen to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. That place where you might not want to go could be the painful but loving correction of a friend to say a hard word. Will we be willing to receive it when that time comes? Will we embrace it that it would come frequently? I would want a friend to speak into my life uh, frequently, often, because I want to grow. So the first thing about foolishness is that the fool cannot take advice, which is basically to say the fool doesn't listen, doesn't know how to listen. But the next point about foolishness is related to that. It's not only the fool, fool doesn't listen, but second, foolishness, does not stop talking, right? The reason you don't listen, the reason the fool can't listen is because they're talking all the time. It's basically what it says, and this is, you know, actually this is a, one of the main lessons my parents taught me growing up. They were always teaching me, you know, don't talk too much, be curious about other people, ask them questions, don't talk about yourself all the time. And of course, I became a preacher, and that's all I do is talk all the time. You know, I didn't learn the lesson. But, uh, but what, one of the things that the Bible says is that you can wreck relationships if you're always talking. Talking can be a profound form of selfishness. And, you know, I, I say this in love to you because some of you, you may not know that. You know, some of us, 
we think about, you know, when you come into a church maybe, or, you know, there's new relationships, you're like, oh, all these people that I want to meet in this church, how do I, you know, attract people to have a relationship with them? And we think that the way that you attract people is by performing with your words. Like, I'm going to maybe show people how much I know, show much, how much knowledge I have, show that I can say the right things. And it turns out that's actually not what's attractive to people. You know, the thing that's attractive, and, and that's very intimidating as well. You come, you know, maybe if you're new to a church and you come into a church and you're like, all these people, I don't know. How am I going to meet them? I have to, like, say these right Christian words. I've got to show all this knowledge. And this idea that I have to perform to draw people to me, that's actually not true. The thing that draws people is when we are curious and we ask them about themselves. Who are you? Tell me about your story. Like, how did you get here? How do you, are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? Like, oh, you do? You don't? You do believe in God? How did that happen for you? You know, like, what did you think about that sermon? He said all that stuff about talking too much. What, do you think that's true? You know, all those things. And, and these curious questions, you're inviting people to engage with you, and it's far more attractive. And, um, and this is one of the things that the wisdom literature of the Bible warns us against is that the fool is always spouting off his opinions. Look at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. See how, like, what he's talking about just takes over every area of his life, just talking. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. And so what this says is not only that the fool talks so much, but he believes himself to be an expert in whatever he's talking about. Whatever the subject is, the fool has all kinds of things to say. Instead of saying, you know, there's actually, I probably don't, there's a lot I don't know about this. I need to learn from others. I need to listen to them. And um, I put a, a quote from, for you on, on page three in your bulletin. Um, this is, uh, Dan Allender wrote an interesting book called Bold Love, which has a chapter on how do you love a fool. This might be interesting for you to check out if you are living with a fool or if you work with a fool. And you're like, how do you love a fool? And this is how he describes, describes a fool. This is what he says. What seems to thrill the soul of a fool more than drugs, sex, food, or any other quick-filling addiction is the sound of his own voice. I've met recovering alcoholics, sexaholics, bulimics, Christians of all stripes, pastors, counselors, Indian chiefs, and CEOs who were transported by the sound of their own intoxicating babble. Nothing is more difficult to bear than a bore or a person who delights in airing his own opinions. The fool thinks he is right in everything he does. Whether it's interpreting a Bible passage or operating a sewing machine, the fool is easily filled, especially with his own grandiosity, but he is blind to the consequences of his direction in life. And you know, it's interesting. Another thing that Proverbs says is that if a fool would actually just not talk, everyone would think they're wise. Like, if you just, if that one thing could, could help so much with, with being a fool. And, I, you know, I do want to pause just to make one point here. I know that for many of you, you know, I, I know for many of you, if you meet with me, I'm your pastor, you're going to spill your guts about all kinds of things that are happening in your life, and you might think, oh, Nate's going to think I'm talking too much now. No, there are times where it is appropriate to talk 
say all kinds of things about what's happening in your life. For some of you, you might need to hear the opposite of this. You don't say anything. You don't open your heart on what you're thinking at all. And so there are certain times where it's absolutely appropriate. And if you, you know, spill your life out to me, of course, I'm going to spill out a sermon to you probably after, and you're going to listen to me. And, but but th- this is just talking about that there are appropriate times to talk. And even here, you'll notice that it does say that the wise do not say nothing at all. It says in verse 12, the words of the wise man's mouth win him favor. Which is actually literally in Hebrew, that's the words of the wise are grace. The words of the wise are grace. When a wise person speaks, the words are precious. Because what a wise person can do is speak at the right time and speak to a person's heart. And you know, when Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit to his disciples, when he was promising his disciples, hey, you're going to go do this mission, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, one of the main things that the Holy Spirit, he said, would do for them was put words in their mouth. You, I'm gonna, you know, you're going to be standing before governors and, and you're going to be talking about the gospel and you're not going to go what to say. And guess what? The Holy Spirit is going to put words in your mouth. And what happens is when we as Christians learn to listen to people, hear about their lives, hear about what they believe, hear about what their convictions, what their passions are, what they believe in, you know, what they know a lot about, all of a sudden we are enabled to find the way to speak the truth of the gospel, to speak life in a way that actually goes to their heart. And uh, Francis Schaeffer, some of you know Francis Schaeffer was a, a, a great apologist, a Christian apologist in the 20th century, great thinker, writer. And he, was, and he shared his faith with a lot of young people. And he said that if he had an hour with a young person where he was going to talk to them about the Bible or about Christianity, he would say, I would spend 55 hours, or sorry, 55 minutes listening to them. And then I'd spend the last five minutes talking. Because I'm not going to know what to say unless I know them, unless I listen to them. Christians should be slow to speak and quick to listen. That should mark us. And actually, if I, could, if I could say one more thing on this, this is what Jesus says, Matthew 12, 36, about the final judgment. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So Jesus takes very seriously a big part of our life is, is how, how do we speak? What do we speak? And it's a great discipline to learn to not to speak. And if I could uh, share one more thing, uh, Dallas Willard is, is another author from the 20, 20th century. He just died recently, who was a philosophy professor at U, USC. And uh, Willard was this brilliant man. You know, he's, he's, he's written all about philosophy. He wrote tons of books as a Christian, a spiritual leader. And, you know, he would teach these undergraduate philosophy classes. And if you've ever been in an undergraduate philosophy class, you know, all these undergraduates, sophomores and juniors, think they know everything about philosophy. And he made it a discipline that when it came to the end of the class, the bell's ringing or whatever, time's up, and there's some sophomore who's just been spouting off why all of his philosophy is right, Dallas Willard would say, and that's the end of class. You get the final word. I don't have to say you're wrong. I don't have to correct you. I can let you speak, even if I disagree with you. I don't have to correct everything. I don't have to answer everything. And he said that was a discipline to learn to just keep his mouth closed and to just listen, even to people he disagreed with. Even to, you know, a sophomore philosophy student who knows nothing, I'll let him speak. That's profound. So that should be a part of our Christian life. So what we see so far about foolishness is first about foolishness looks like I'm not willing to listen. 
And then, and then foolishness looks like a quickness to speak, you know, intoxicating sound of our own babble, right? There's one other thing about, this, about foolishness we learn in this passage is, is, is that foolishness does not take much effort. Foolishness is very easy to do. And uh, you'll see this in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A little bit of folly, just a little fly in this you know, big thing of ointment is going to destroy the whole thing. It's going to ruin this, the, the, the fragrance of the whole thing. That's how folly is. You know, if you have a mountain of wisdom and a little bit of folly, the whole thing becomes folly. But if you have a mountain of folly and a little bit of wisdom, the whole thing is folly. You see how, you see how it works? It's kind of like if you could spend a whole life, decades and decades, building trust in a marriage, and you could make one foolish night of pleasure, of um, infidelity, and you ruin the whole, the whole trust of the whole marriage. But if you have a whole life of folly in a marriage and, and you know, breaking promises, and then you, you know, have a wisdom for one day, it's still a whole life of folly. It doesn't undo it. Folly is more powerful in that sense, right? And it just takes a little bit of it that destroys and is very destructive. We get destructive to relationships. You could have friendships that have all kinds, you know, years of trust with them, and a small betrayal can set that friendship back um, uh, years. And um, that's because foolishness only thinks in the short term, and it doesn't think about the long term. Wisdom is always thinking about slowly building, slowly, wisely thinking about its actions. And that means that also foolishness does not plan well. You can see this here in verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. So one commentator said, this is describing the fool as like trying to chop down a tree with a baseball bat. And he's just wailing on it. It's like, well, you know, if you just got a sharp axe, you might get some work done on it. But see, the fool is not planning. He's not thinking ahead. It's not, not carefully thinking about what he's doing. So also, foolishness looks like laziness. Verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. This is the epitome of an effortlessness. That's what foolishness looks like. I'm not putting effort in. And that might be a place, you know, for some of you, where laziness and, and, you know, giving myself to work, you know, procrastination might be a real problem. And I, if I could just say one, you know, side note here, um, procrastination is a big issue for pastors, right? You know, they're sitting there trying to write a sermon, and they're, you know, and you, if anyone who works at a computer, going, you know, reading blogs, wasting time is a big issue. And one of the things that I've found has been immensely helpful for that, this is from Dallas Willard as well, actually, is to begin a day by saying to the Lord, I'm presenting my body to you for your service. I'm presenting my body to your service. I know I have a, a temptation towards laziness. I don't feel like doing the work that I need today need to do today. So I'm going to present my body and I pray that you will fill my body with your spirit to enable me to do the work that you've set before me. But that simple prayer, it says that we cannot, you know, work hard and resist laziness on our own. 
And so this is the other thing about foolishness. Is foolishness does not put much effort in. It doesn't put planning in. It doesn't put labor in. It doesn't put work in. And so here's, here's a picture of, of, of foolishness. And you know, maybe any of these things that I've said hits you in some spot. But there's one other thing that I want to point out uh, about this passage that it doesn't say about foolishness. Because being a fool, that may be something that's a part of your kind of inner dialogue. I don't know for you, but that's one of the things that I'll kind of say to myself of, you are such a fool. And what are the things that we generally say you are such a fool for? Well, often it's things like, you're such a fool for thinking that that person would have liked you. You're such a fool for thinking that someone would have loved you. You're such a fool for thinking that God would really be good and have good plans and good purposes for you. Why are you, such a, why are you so trusting? Why are, you so, why are you so gullible, so believing all the time? Now, this kind of foolishness is what the world says is foolishness. To be trusting, to be soft-hearted, to be hopeful, to be believing. And this is not what the Bible... The Bible doesn't say that's foolishness. The Bible doesn't say that. And it's really interesting, actually. The, the theme of foolishness comes up in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See, the wise in the world say you should be independent. You shouldn't need anyone. You shouldn't depend on anyone. You, you, all you need is yourself, and you don't need to trust in God. Don't trust in God. You have to fight for yourself if you want anything. And it's the fools who say, I will actually, I'm weak. I will open my heart to maybe God would love someone like me. And that foolishness, God embraces with his own foolishness. Because this is what it also says in 1 Corinthians 1, that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, Jesus dying on the cross for sinners and fools like us. The world says, this is ridiculous, this is folly. But Paul says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And so the answer to foolishness is not to become wise in ourselves. It is paradoxically to trust in the foolishness of God, which is wiser than the wisdom of men. Because as much as our foolishness is destructive, the foolishness of God that he would take the place of sinners heals, welcomes, brings life. And we should be the kind of fools that are willing to hope and trust in that good news. Let's pray together.